Okay. Hey, it's your girl, Miss Mouthy, and welcome. This is the Miss Mouthy podcast, all about trans women of color here in the city of Detroit, our narratives and experiences, and the allies that love and support us. Um, if you are just tuning in, thank you for tuning in. Um, if you are returning set of lips, I thank you for coming back again. This episode, I think I want to entitle it, Your Mental Health is Showing. One thing about um, me is like people will hear that quote from me often in moments if I feel like I'm in a disagreement with somebody and they're like very high rate, or if I'm personally going through something in and of itself like one of my mental health battles or something like that. So I always be like, well, girl, your mental health showing. <laughs> um, but today I definitely wanted to bring on someone who I think is an expert and will shine a lot of light around mental health because um, for me personally, I feel like people of color don't get to talk more about mental health and how it impacts us and how it show up. So I wanted to invite a dear friend on and like, talk with me. Can you introduce yourself today, special guest? Sure. Um, so my name is Lance Hicks. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm a biracial, black and white, trans, um, femme. Um, and uh, I'm also a clinical social worker and a mental health therapist born and raised here in Detroit. Okay, cool. So Thank you again for coming on. Can you like um, maybe tell the people how long you've been kind of like doing this work in this field and what your background looks like? Sure. So my journey providing mental health care started young because I actually experienced my own mental health struggles starting in an early age. I um, developed depression and anxiety around the age of 12. Um, Shortly thereafter, I, you know, was engaging in self-harm, in some suicidality, and um, it was really, really difficult for me. And so uh, by the time I came out as trans, I was 15 then, and um, I started volunteering at an organization called Common Ground, which... Um, okay, yes. Yeah, you know Common Ground? Yeah, I was in Common Ground. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So yeah. I volunteered there with their outreach program. Okay. Um, and I learned how to do crisis intervention, which is a specific technique to provide support to people who are in mental health distress. Um, and it's cool crisis intervention. I'm a big advocate of it because anybody can do it. You don't have to be a therapist. You don't have to be a licensed clinician. Um, peer, peer to peer crisis intervention is really powerful. Um, and so I started doing that in high school and, um, you know, eventually I started getting jobs as I got older and they were all working with people um, in kind of like the social work field. And so that led me to uh, obtain my social work degree in 2016 and ultimately my MSW in 2017. Okay. Yes. Um, you mentioned something very important. I think it's good to recognize that like you don't have to be an adult, right, to be experiencing mental health issues, right? You say you were 12 years old. Is that something that you think is common or maybe on the rise in today's generation? Absolutely. So um, one of my first jobs that I had out of grad school, um, about a year and a half out of grad school, I took a job at the Children's Center of Wayne County. Okay. Um, 
which is a large complex of mental health services offered through the Detroit Wayne Integrated Health Network, um, free of charge to all city of Detroit and Wayne County residents holding Medicaid. Um, and so I actually had a ridiculous caseload there, in my opinion. Okay. I think it was too I believe high. it. I had 74 children on my caseload. Um, and I was seeing, uh, seeing most of them either once a week or twice a week with a few I was seeing less frequently for more um, like minor concerns. Okay. Um, but that was kind of par for the course at the Children's Center. And as far as I'm aware, that still is that, that around 70 uh, person caseload marker mm -hmm. is pretty common there. Um, and they have many, many clinicians. I, I don't know how many, but it's, I was in a large building and I was one of many large buildings, I think definitely over a hundred clinicians. Okay. Um, and so, uh, yes. And then recently in 2019, the Trevor project came out with a LGBTQ youth mental health study. And they found that, uh, something like, I don't want to misquote it, but it was either one in three trans youth had considered suicide and one in five had attempted, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, is what they I think found. I read that same report. Yeah, and that was really interesting to see. And I was like, only thinking about not only those numbers, but oftentimes when trans people are represented, they're not represented in the way that they see fit. So the numbers could be twice that, if not triple that, um, if people yeah. are identified properly. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so can you kind of describe, because like as my own mental health journey, one thing I noticed in like the Black community, we self-diagnose ourselves often. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I'm depressed. Um, but there are so many other mental health um, things that people experience outside of depression and anxiety. Can you kind of like highlight some that are either common or overlooked or mistaken for something else? Yeah. So the first thing I'm going to say is that as a social worker, I take a unique perspective to diagnosis different than what, say, a psychologist or a psychiatrist might take. Okay. Um, I, I take what we call a psychosocial approach or like a person and environment approach, okay. um, meaning that like you can't just look at what's going on in somebody's head. You have to look at what's going on in somebody's um, life, um, in their community, their neighborhood, um, their identity-based community, be it the Black community, the trans yeah. community, what have you, and then also in the world. And that all of these things kind of come together to create the conditions of our mental health status. So for example, if somebody comes to me and they say, you know what, I haven't got out of bed in two weeks. I'm going to lose my job because I'm not showing up to work. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not, you know, bathing. I'm not um, eating properly. Um, but I don't know what to do. I feel so depressed. Well, if I start to talk to them and they say, well, you know, maybe my spouse is incarcerated and, you know, I am, I'm low income, I'm not making enough money to pay my rent, I'm at risk of eviction, um, I can't afford my gender affirming care, and so right. my dysphoria is really off the chain. Like to me, in my opinion, that's not depression. To me, 
that is um, actually trauma. And trauma is when um, we're faced with a situation that overwhelms our ability to cope, essentially. And that's not something that's wrong with us. It's kind of something that's wrong with our situation that's not our fault at all and not based yeah. inside of ourselves. Um, so for billing purposes and insurance purposes, maybe I'll diagnose that person with depression um, because that's what insurance companies like to see. Right. But between me and my client, I will say to them, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I think maybe you just need a little bit of extra support right now because you're dealing with some very real challenges, you know? And I think sometimes in our communities, we pathologize ourselves a lot and we say, oh, like, look at um, that person, like they have a personality disorder or they have an anxiety disorder or they're depressed or even they have PTSD when really like people are having very adaptive responses to untenable situations, yeah. you know? Very true. Um, so you hinted on one word that like, really, I think in the past two years, I've been dealing with face first, you said trauma. And so for people who might be tuning in, can you like elaborate on like what trauma looked like? Because for me, I thought it had to be something catastrophic or <laughs> I thought it was something, I just thought it was nothing at all, right? Like as a black trans woman, I started to normalize trauma and didn't realize that that was something I was doing. Absolutely. So I think that, um, Trauma is something that a lot of oppressed people, like Black people, trans women in particular, of course, but like all really marginalized people do this, is that we undermine our own experiences of trauma because it is the norm for us. Yes. Because um, if, well, I'll just explain. So there's really like different types of trauma. There's what we call shock trauma or single incident trauma. And that would be like, if you were a person who basically had your needs met, had a loving and supportive home, was like going through life, you know, like went to school, maybe your parents supported you. Um, you were raised by loving family. Um, really your life was pretty good. And then one day you got in a terrible car accident and you kept having nightmares about it. You kept having flashbacks of it mm -hmm. and you couldn't forget it. That is single incident trauma. Okay. What that means is um, you, something bad happened, but for the most part, you were set up for success in life. And so it's going to be much easier for you to bounce back from that with support from a therapist or even frankly, a friend or family member it doesn't have to be a therapist. Not everyone wants to go to therapy and that's fine. Right. But um, there's another type of trauma and that's called complex trauma. Complex trauma is when a person is going through life and let's say uh, as a baby, they're malnourished and they're not given enough food to eat. And so then CPS comes in and they take them away from their family and they place them in foster care. And then let's say throughout their time in foster care over the years as a toddler, they're abused and they're harmed by their foster parents. And so maybe now they get to be an adolescent and they go to school and CPS gets called again. So they get put in a new placement and they stay in the new placement for a while, but they feel like they don't fit in. And so they run away from home and they run away from home and bad things happen to them on the street. Right. So over the course of the lifespan, bad things are happening to this person. Right. Yes. This is complex trauma. And the difference between single incident or shock trauma and complex trauma is that in complex trauma, 
what's normal to your nervous system is living in fear and, and danger. And so it's very difficult to bounce back from that, but it is possible. And that's actually what I specialize in is working with folks who have complex trauma, okay. because I believe that the most marginalized people in our community do. Um, and I think the way that we heal from complex trauma is usually in a healthy healing relationship. Um, so whereas with PTSD, like sometimes you just need to like um, work through, uh, like there's like a, usually there's a three phase approach to working with trauma. First is safety and stabilization. Okay. where like, let's say you get to a place where you can just sit in a car and not feel as terrified as you used to. Okay. And then there's uh, remembrance and mourning where you're like telling the story of the car accident, maybe in therapy or to someone you trust um, and processing it. Maybe you talk about it. Maybe you don't talk about it. Maybe you tell the story with your body through doing different physical movements in therapy and a somatic approach. There are different ways you can kind of tell the story. Right. But that's like the second phase. And the third phase is kind of integration. Um, and that's where you're kind of moving forward with your life. And you say, that car accident was really bad and I'm never gonna forget it, but it's not gonna rule my life anymore. And I'm moving forward and gonna do new things now. Yeah. So that's what really works really well with PTSD. With complex PTSD, we use the same phase-oriented model a lot of the time, but it takes longer because okay. people have to relearn how to have safe relationships or learn for the first time how to have safe relationships um, and learn that people can be a source of security and affirmation and comfort and love and not just fear and abuse. Right. Well, thank you for that. That, that makes a lot, it makes a lot of sense for one, but two, it, it helps shows up how I even process my own trauma and things of that nature. And it's been a it's been a journey. Like in my mind, sometimes I'll think that, like, oh, I'm over that situation. And it comes up in a whole different waveform that was unbecoming to me. And then I have to relearn or rework um, a new coping skill. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that comes off often a lot is around um, how people people don't really know how to start therapy or if what would really be the benefits of therapy. So is there some things people should think about when choosing a mental health provider? Yes, absolutely. So um, the first thing you want to think about is what you're looking for to get out of therapy. So for some people, what they really want is they want practical skills. Like, let's say you have like, like a good example of this is like, if you have a specific phobia, right? Like maybe you're afraid to ride in an elevator and you want to go to therapy because your office is on the 11th floor where you work and right. you're afraid of the elevator this for many people would be a problem, right? Yes. So you might look for a therapist who provides specific skills for coping with anxiety and is gonna give you tools and technique or sometimes we call it like homework, therapy homework, things to do in between session to work on, to kind of practice. That's the type of therapy that a lot of people want. Um, it's different from what I do. Um, what I do is like relational and attachment-based. And when I say attachment-based, I mean 
It's about connecting folks uh, in a healing relationship. And so uh, a lot of what we do is we connect as human beings and we like get to know each other on like a, a very personal level. And people ultimately become very vulnerable and share very intimate things about their lives. And, but they do that on their terms. Um, and then like, I get to have this really, really beautiful interaction with them where I can kind of give them, reflect back to them, the support and affirmation and kind of compassion and care that they really deserve that maybe they didn't get when they were younger. Mm. Um, and some people really want that, especially if they've been through complex trauma, that's really common to have that relationship-based approach. Right. Um, other people say, you know what, I just want to get to know myself better. I really think that therapy is a good place to go. Um, I think everybody should have access to therapy, no matter if you're struggling with your mental health or if you're not, because knowing yourself better is never a bad thing in my opinion. And in my opinion, that's the number one thing that good therapy can help you with is to help you get to know yourself better, to learn how you work, to learn how to take care of yourself, learn how to set boundaries, learn how to Mm -hmm. navigate relationships, um, learn what makes you happy, learn how to go for what you want in life, you know? Um, and so that's the number one thing I think is what kind of therapy do you want? Um, you also want to think about what kind of provider you want to go to. If you have Medicaid, you may choose to go to community mental health because they're the largest provider of Medicaid therapy services, but actually, um, you know, some Medicaid providers do a great job. Some kind of bounce you around and jerk you around. And so you may choose to go to private practice. And a lot of people don't know that you can see a therapist in private practice, even if you are on Medicaid. A lot of people think you have to be privately insured, but that's not the case. I actually, in my practice, see um, a large number, perhaps the majority of Medicaid clients. Um, And so uh, what you can do is you can go on this website called Psychology Today, Um, Or another good website, the one that I use for my profile is called Therapy Den. Um, And you can search by um, insurance provider, you can search by zip code, you can search by what type of therapy they do. Like there's different kinds of therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, psychodynamic therapy, all different kinds. Um, I do a type of therapy called internal family systems, Um, but they're all different. And so um, if you're wanting to learn more about the different types of therapy that are out there to learn which type might be right for you, there's a good website called Good Therapy. Um, And if you type in the name of any type of therapy, it'll give you a little article that explains what it is and how it works. Mm, Nice. Thank you for sharing that. I think you hit on a really good point because when I was seeking therapy, one of the biggest things that I wanted to do was let go. I needed to learn how to let go of toxic relationships, and I wanted to let go of anger. And that was the goal that I set out on, but I knew one thing had to be certain. I felt more comfortable with having um, a woman provider. um, And I also felt very more relatable if it was a person of color. So until I found those type of search things, I didn't want to even start therapy, but I've I've really seen a great change in myself once I started. And I'm more aware of like my triggers when like something is about to be offset. And like, now that we're getting into the holiday season and it's being more 
wintertime, um, oftentimes we hear about something called seasonal depression. And mm -hmm. can you kind of like expunge on what that looks like? Sure. So seasonal depression or seasonal affective disorder, um, which is funny because it, it spells out sad, um, uh, is, yeah, it's, um, it's a, a short-term mental health concern that really afflicts a lot of us here in Michigan um, because we have such long, dark winters. Um, and um, it happens because we don't get it. We don't get outside as much. We don't get as much exercise, which gives us endorphins. We don't get as much vitamin D. Um, we don't um, maybe eat as healthy as we would like to. Um, and so all of these things can kind of combine to impact how we're feeling, our mood. And so, you know, I'm not an expert in depression and seasonal affective disorder, but what I will say is definitely try to get at least 30 minutes of exercise a day, even if it's in your house, just doing push-ups or crunches on the floor or jogging in place or walking up and down your stairs. If you live in a, a house or an apartment with steps, um, that can be really helpful. Um, eating colorful foods. So um, trying to uh, have like a variety in your diet. I don't really believe that there's such a thing as healthy or unhealthy foods. I believe right. that all foods can be healthy for us. Right. Um, but if you eat the same thing all the time, then you're not necessarily going to get as much different nutrients. Mm -hmm. um, and so trying to have variety in your diet can be good. And then also um, going, uh, going outside a little bit if you can. And I know nobody really likes to be outside in December yeah. in Michigan, but your body will thank you for it. And your mental health will thank you for it too. If you get outside, even if it's just for five, 10 minutes to like walk down to the corner of your street and back, um, it can be really helpful. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That is, that is amazing. I really think that's, yeah, is that is everything people need because I feel like doing those things added with my additional self-care has been able to promote certain things and like, being honest with yourself, right? Like being honest when you know that you're not okay. Like today, I ain't got no makeup on. <laughs> I'm like, it's cold outside. I'm not getting out there. Um, I'm not necessarily depressed, but I know I'm not like at my best. So it makes me right. feel good to be honest with myself and where I'm at in my internal feelings. Because like, I didn't realize it as a thing, but a lot of people can decipher a lot of emotions outside of anger and sadness. So I've been really trying to work at being more honest about how I'm feeling in the moment. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And what about people who may experience like trauma, but don't know if it's actually trauma? What are some things that they should kind of like look out for? Yeah. So, I mean, trauma is unique to each person is kind of the short answer. And what I mean by that is that if two people are riding in the same car and get in the same accident, nobody's injured, nobody goes to the hospital, you know, the exact same people witness the exact same thing from the exact same place. One of them may come away with PTSD and the other one may not. And why is that? Well, um, it has to do with a lot of factors. It has to do with how you're set up in life 
if one of you has a good support system, people to talk to, family that cares about you, you're less likely to be traumatized. Um, also, if somebody is able to debrief with somebody caring immediately after, who's able to say like, I'm here for you, not necessarily to recount the event in detail and what happened, right? But just to talk about how they're feeling about it and to be witnessed, you know, um, there's a really well-known trauma therapist who I admire a lot named Peter Levine. And he has this quote I love. He says, trauma is not what happens to you, but what happens inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. So if you don't feel seen, if you don't feel validated, if you feel like your struggle is going on, if it's being missed by others and not not recognized in society, um, you're more likely to carry trauma. In uh, the late 80s, there was a study by Kaiser Permanente and the CDC um, called the ACEs study. Um, And ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood adverse childhood experiences. And there were 10 different things on this list. And the list is kind of dated now and the wording of it is kind of offensive, frankly. Right. Um, but the list still makes an important point. What they found was that children under the age of 18 who had at least four or more of these ACEs, these 10 experiences, um, were more likely to have lower medical health outcomes in adulthood. Um, And so these experiences included like being in a house where there was domestic violence, um, experiencing loss of a parent through separation, divorce, or death, um, having a parent with a severe mental illness, um, being sexually harmed or abused. Um, I don't remember all of them, but they're easy to Google if you just look up adverse childhood experiences. And the point is, these are experiences that set you up for potential trauma. But even then, if you had like, for example, I, my parents did not live together when I was growing up, but I was raised by both of them and they both were very nurturing to me and very loving to me. So even though my parents were not married, I don't consider that a trauma for myself because I did not have a traumatic effect from that. Um, But if you notice that you're having the effects of feeling kind of depressed about something, feeling kind of anxious, feeling what we call either hyper aroused or hypo aroused. Mm-hmm. Hyper aroused where you're like on edge, you're kind of twitchy, looking over your shoulder, feeling jumpy, feeling like you have to defend yourself or else being irritable, being really angry all the time, um, wanting to start fights, especially with youth, getting into fights a lot, um, you know, potentially doing, making like a, kind of rash decisions or reckless decisions or impulsive decisions could be getting you in trouble with the law, things of that nature. Um, These can be a sign of trauma. And then there's hypoarousal where you may feel kind of depressed, kind of sluggish. Maybe you uh, have some suicidal thoughts. Um, Maybe you have thoughts of wanting to harm yourself. Maybe sometimes you just kind of space out and you don't really know where the time goes. You just kind of like stay to yourself, kind of stare off into, into the void and daydream. These can all be symptoms of trauma. And I think if you're experiencing any of these, it's good to talk to a mental health provider. Yeah, definitely. Um, even, even for parents, like myself included, I think it's really important to 
monitor your kids. It's easy to get distracted with like social media and them being in a phone, them just getting to that age where like the relationship might be a little different, but trying him in on where your child is on their mental health thing. Because one of my concerns is like, while I'm going through this custody battle with my ex, um, I've noticed how this experience have really shaped my daughter like in trauma. So um, hopefully moving forward, well, she's in therapy now, but moving forward, hopefully it doesn't have a long standing impact. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to share that for the parents who might be listening. It's really important to like really ham on your child. Like I've noticed she's become a lot more aggressive with other children and be ready to like fight in those type of things. And then just like, okay, what's going on? What's coming up for you? And be able to have those honest conversations and let your kids talk to you about what it is that they're feeling. Um, and so what about confidentiality? Because I also know too, sometimes when parents want to take their youth or their children to um, see a provider, they kind of want to know the ins and the outs of what was said or what was spoken. Yeah, so I think that it's important to, um, to respect confidentiality in therapy regardless of the age of the client, meaning that even if you have a child that you're bringing to therapy, um, to respect that your child has their own thoughts and feelings and they're entitled to some privacy around that. Now, that being said, I do think that with minors, especially with younger kids, like 12 and under, it's really important for the parents to be actively involved as much as possible in the treatment. And that can look like something that's prearranged between the child, the therapist, and the parent or guardian. So um, that looks like usually in the intake, there'll be a portion, especially with older kids, there may be a portion with the child alone. With younger kids, it may be you, your child, and the therapist all together the whole time during the intake. Um, but most, most therapists will want to do parent sessions where it's just the therapist and the parent. And the therapist, the purpose of that is not to violate the child's confidentiality and say, oh, this is what, you know, little, little junior said. Right. Um, but it's to say, these are some of the things that are arising. These are some of the general themes that are arising. Here's what I think you should be aware of as a parent. And here's how I think you can help. Um, and that being said, of course, um, it's important for any minor listening to this to know that if your parent has consented to provide you with therapy, um, they are entitled to view your clinical records. So have a conversation with your therapist about what they're documenting and how they're documenting it, um, because your parents may be able to access that. Now, in Michigan, um, youth ages... I always forget if it's youth ages 12 and up can have 14 sessions without a parent's consent, or if it's youth ages 14 and up can have 12 sessions without a parent's consent. I'll get but, a number. <laughs> uh, but there, there is a limited number of sessions that minors um, at least age 14, maybe as young as 12, um, can consent to without their parents' uh, permission. And this is especially important for LGBT youth because you may want to see a therapist to talk about your identity, be it your sexual orientation, your gender identity, if you right. have plans to transition and you actually can consent to your own treatment for the first two weeks without needing to get your parents involved. And that can give you, or the first, the first 14 days, which is more than two weeks. It's like a few months. Right. Um, 
so that's a good way that you can kind of advocate for yourself as a minor if you're looking to get therapy, but you don't necessarily feel supported by the adults in your lives. That's great that you mentioned that because oftentimes I do know even my identity way before I knew about how to access therapy and those things, just being misgendered as a trans person or a person who was considering transitioning, how that impacted my mental health in moments. Um, I don't know if there's a term or a name for it, but I just definitely know how that made me feel every time something like that came up for me. Yeah, I mean, some people I think use the word dysphoria and I think some people like that word and some people find that word to be oppressive. Um, So I would never place that term on anybody, but like if you're looking for like mental health terminology to describe that feeling, I think that's one word some people might use, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, So even in doing this type of work, um, I think when people, right, accountability is something that really takes forms and we've seen how over the years mental health has changed. Um, how, How could somebody go about maybe changing their providers or what would be a red flag for someone who might be like, this might not be the best person who's fit to like work with. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing that you have to ask yourself is, is this therapist a safe person? And uh, that's first and foremost, safety first. So by a safe person, I mean, do they make you feel safe? Do you feel you can trust them? Do you feel you can open up to them? Do they do things that make you uncomfortable? Some therapists are trained to use, for example, um, physical touch in therapy in a therapeutic way that is appropriate. Um, If a therapist doesn't have that specific training and they're initiating touch with you, it's important to think to yourself, does this make me uncomfortable? Some people are comfortable with a hug or a handshake. Some people don't want to be touched at all. So that can be a safety issue. And you want to think about that and communicate with your therapist about that. But if they're violating your physical boundaries, that's a red flag. Um, Along those lines, in trauma work, if your therapist tells you, oh, you have to tell me what happened, you have to retell the story of what happened, that's a red flag too. A good trauma therapist knows you don't have to retell the story of what happened. That's kind of old logic that you have to create like what they call the trauma narrative um, in order to heal from traumatic experiences. Some people wanna talk about their trauma and that's perfectly valid and, and wonderful. Um, but some people don't ever want to talk about it again. And for those people, you should know that you have the option to go to therapy and you don't have to relive that experience. Um, in terms of uh, other issues to consider, if your therapist spends a lot of time talking about themselves, that's a red flag. Like a little bit of sharing about themselves to kind of open up and develop that relationship is okay. But if you know like about your therapist's dating life and their medical problems and all kinds of personal stuff, you shouldn't know that because what that does is it creates a situation where you now feel like you have to attend to your therapist's needs. Mm -hmm. And a therapist is the only person on the planet who their job is just to be there for you and they expect nothing in return. It's why a lot of therapists consider themselves to be involved in reparenting, like to, because we want to be there for people in the way that a good parent would be there for people. We talk a lot about being a good enough therapist. 
And what that means is that sometimes therapists mess up. We make mistakes, we're human, but a good enough therapist will own up to it. And we'll say, you know what? I said this, or I didn't say this, or I did that, or I didn't do that. And that was wrong. And I messed up and I'm sorry. And right. can we talk about it? Can I make it better? How can I, how can I make amends for what we did? And how can we move past this? Because I care about you and I care about your mental health and I want to support you. Um, and if your therapist is, is frequently doing things that make you uncomfortable or that cross boundaries and not making amends and not being a good enough therapist for you, then absolutely, I think, um, have a conversation with them. I'm always a fan of having a conversation with your therapist first, but if the conversation leaves you feeling unsatisfied or like the therapist isn't really understanding the severity of what happened or why it bothered you so, you have every right to look for a new therapist. And ethically speaking, your therapist should be happy to provide you referrals and help you find someone else. Yes, thank you. So I definitely like to do things at the end of the episode of Miss Mouthy where I let the guests drop some pearls of wisdom. So this could be a young person or just anybody listening. What would be uh, your advice you would want to give someone around mental health? Mm -hmm. Well, one piece of advice that I'd really like to share is I'd like to tell people about a new free resource here in Detroit that's available to anyone. Um, if you live, work, or play in Detroit, and it's called Reach Us Detroit. And the cool thing about Reach Us Detroit is it's, it's over the phone, it's free therapy, it's like a hotline, but instead of like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or the Trevor Project, where you really only call them if you're in a crisis, right. Reach Us Detroit, you can call if you just need someone to talk to and they will do an hour long therapy session with you over the phone and they will set you up with recurring hour long therapy appointments and they will have the same therapist call you back. It's free of charge. Um, and um, they're really excellent. And um, I can say, I know personally, uh, there are supporters of our community who are working within that, um, that service and it's, they're really dedicated folks. They are trans competent and trans aware. Um, and if you go to reachusdetroit.org, um, you can find out more about them, but that's available to anyone who lives, works, or plays in Detroit. And I think it's a great way to find an entry point to access mental health, especially if transportation is an issue or if you're not comfortable being on camera so you don't want to do Zoom because um, it is over the phone. I just think it's a really great option. Thank you so much. I think that's really good too. That's an innovative, a new innovative way of people being one discreet about like, you know, if they don't want people to know that they need to talk to someone, but also getting their needs met. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's a game changer. So hopefully anybody who needs someone to talk to, please reach out. I think I actually am going to give that information to a few people who I know. Um, but I guess my pearls of wisdom would just also be, because I'm what you call the like, <laughs> um, therapist, okay? You know, I'm one of those people that like, oftentimes when you're in these roles and these positions, you you didn't ask for the assignment for people to kind of like emotionally dump or you don't have the requirements to be a mental health provider, but you kind of just want to be a listening ear. What I will say is be mindful of 
your emotional boundaries and your emotional capability. Um, it is okay to let people know that you don't have it right now to like listen to them. That does not make you a bad person. That just simply need means that you need your space and maybe at another time when you can, <laughs> you will. And if you can't, that's okay too. And try and just refer them off to this new resource that we just found out about today. Um, so how can people keep in contact with you, Lance, if um, they want to seek your services or just want to say thank you for your world, words of wisdom? Oh, oh, thank you so much. Um, so I have a practice that I started August 2nd. Um, it's called yes. Inner Justice Works. Yeah. And um, it's inner justice because I believe that um, we can enact social justice by finding inner peace and inner healing. Um, and so social justice, meaning uh, addressing racism, addressing anti-Blackness, addressing transphobia, addressing classism and poverty, um, addressing ableism, all these things that impact us and that cause us harm in the world, we can heal from on an inner level and then expand to doing the outer healing work and social change work. Um, and so you can email me at Lance, L-A-N-C-E at innerjustice.works um, or you can find me on Therapy Den if you just look up therapyden.com and then search for Lance Hicks. Um, I'm on there. And um, I'm also on Instagram at Inner Justice Works. Thank you so much. Um, I wish you much success with everything that you do. I love watching you. Um, thank you for being a resource to people to be able to um, combat their trauma. So keep doing great things and great work. Um, yeah, so I'm so thankful you came today, of course. Um, I didn't even tell y'all about my weekend recap. It wasn't much, but we just celebrated the holidays. I also want to be mindful that not all trans people have the luxury or the privilege to be able to be in kinship, so let's be mindful. And with that being said, December 18th, me and Delisa Abad is collaborating to have our um, holiday feast, warm feast Christmas event so we can, like, close trans people and also feed them and just be in community during the holidays. So if you know anybody who might be in need or want to come to the event, it's going to be at Menjo's um, off of Six Mile and it'll be from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. And so you can make a donation, you can donate winter essentials, or you can um, just come. Come be a month community and show support. But I think it's really important for that. And like, um, it's cold, it's cold in the wintertime. And I think oftentimes we don't think about how homelessness affects our community at such an alarming rate. So that's my one way of being able to try and combat <laughs> a lot of things, the loneliness, the homelessness, and being able to make sure trans people feel supported and seen. Um, and we have um, Matthew mentions. So I just wanna highlight one black business called The Rose Effect. It is a Detroit brand clothing line that is um, made and the clothes is phenomenal, y'all. Go check it out. It's um, theroseeffects.com. You may have seen it on my social media, but you, we have to be careful who we give our hearts to. Like that's the slogan of the brand. I think when we talk about trauma, when we think about mental health, a lot of the relationships that we form, hopefully if you go see Lance, you know, that type of work will be able to, hey, so be mindful who you give your heart to. 
Until next time, it's your girl, Miss Mouthy. And when you don't what? See me, you hear me. Bye. <laughs>